If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. I know that many of us are concerned about all what's taking place around us, particularly with the storm and, and what our week is going to look like. And, and uh, you know, some of us, even as I was thinking about it this week, you know, we're concerned about this, this Hurricane Irma, but I have no doubt that there's some of us that are struggling with what is the equivalent of a hurricane inside our own lives right now, emotional, emotionally in various ways. And so I recognize that when we come to a place like this, on a day like today, when we've got some of these things that are out there, it may be difficult for us to, to, to just calm our hearts and to maybe even be able to just to focus. But, but I don't know of anything else as a pastor and, and as, as a proclaimer of the gospel to do than to point us to God's holy word. It is that that is strong and it is that that is a firm foundation upon which we can stand. And so this morning, unashamedly, I, I point us back to God's Word today because I believe that is what we need most, more than anything else, especially during times when everything around us is in chaos and, and, and even in the threat of, of, of storms such as of the magnitude of Hurricane Irma, then the thing that we need to do most of all is to focus our attention on God's Holy Word and what God communicates to us about Himself through His Word. So this morning, we're going to look at Mark chapter 7 verses 24 through 30. And I would say this, you know, as a pastor and a teacher of the Bible, there are just some passages that are easier to preach than others. There are some passages that when you go to the text and you just look at it, it just breaks open for you and you can observe what's there, you can interpret what's there, and you can apply what's there in a very straightforward manner. And then there are other texts. Texts like what we have this morning. Texts sometimes that cause you to sit and stare at the words and think, what am I supposed to do with that? Well, today is one of those passages, and it's not because what we read about this morning is difficult to understand. Absolutely not. It's actually the other way around. It's because what we read this morning is so clear, and yet when we read it, it quite frankly may make us feel a little uncomfortable when we read it. The discomfort that we read about in this passage really comes from the fact that Mark tells us about a mother who in a frantic and distraught state comes to Jesus begging for help. She has a young daughter who is possessed by a demon and, and, and she comes begging Jesus to heal her daughter. However, in both what we're going to read this morning in Mark chapter 7 and also in the parallel account of, of this, which occurs in Matthew chapter 15 verses 21 through 28, we'll actually get the distinct impression that Jesus genuinely... Well, he was reluctant to, to help this mother. Not only does he come across unwilling to help, but we're made even more uncomfortable when we, when we recognize that Jesus makes a, a, what appears to be an insensitive and even an offensive statement to her right in the middle of her most anxious moment. Now, it's not as if we're unused to Jesus making very blunt and direct statements. We've seen him do that before. We saw him do it in the last section that we studied in Mark 7 when he confronted the, excuse me, when he confronted the, the scribes and the Pharisees and said to them, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. Jesus bluntly and directly confronted them a lot. Matter of fact, there's various times we learn it. He called the, the, the Pharisees hypocrites. He called them fools. He called them vipers. He called them whitewashed tombs. He even called them sons of the devil. Jesus was not unaccustomed to using direct and blunt language. The truth is, we're familiar with Jesus doing that with the hypocritical religious leaders. But when we come to a story about a desperate mother, when we come to the story about a mom who's trying to get help for her daughter, 
Well, for Jesus to make a statement that appears rude and insensitive, that tends to make us squirm in our seats. And the reason it does is because it seems so out of character for him. So what are we supposed to do with that? How should we handle a passage like this one? Well, I would suggest that the answer to that question is not to just simply deal with what Jesus says, but, but we need to deal with that, but we also need to deal with the other parts of this text. That is, the way that the mother approached Jesus and, and how she responded to what he said. And then to the commendation that he gives her. And then finally, to the blessing that she ultimately received from him. In other words, as, as R.T. France has, has written, the challenges and the misunderstandings of this passage spring largely from a failure to read it as a whole. So I believe that's what we're supposed to do this, with this passage, and it's what I intend to do this morning. And Pastor Ted said earlier, sit back and relax. I'm going to tell you to do just the opposite. You've got the whole seat, but I hope you just use the edge this morning. I hope you just lean forward into this this morning and, and that we begin to concentrate our attention because I hope I've whetted your appetite for what is a passage that I believe when we truly understand it, it really opens up the marvelous nature of the gospel and God's word to us today. So as that is an introduction, let's begin reading it there in Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Hear the word of God today. It says this, From there he, that is Jesus, arose, and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord. Yet, even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying in bed. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your love. Thank you for your care. Thank you for providing us with your word that is there and is stable and is strong and is foundational and is fixed and we can depend on it even when everything else in our life may be in a state of disarray. We can depend on your word because your word is truth. Father, recognizing that, we pray that you sanctify us by that truth. Make us holy. Continue to conform us in the image of your son as we study your word together. Bring conviction to our hearts. Allow your Holy Spirit to, to work in us. Help us not to resist that work, but rather to embrace it and allow him to, to do within us that which you desire, which you will accomplish through your word, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, I believe if we're going to gain a full appreciation for this text this morning, we need to recognize two very important things that Mark tells us in the first verse, verse 24. I want, you to point, I want to point you to those this morning. The first thing that we learn, according to verse 24 this morning, is that Jesus, along with his disciples, 
left the land of Israel and traveled outside Israel to a Gentile country. Specifically, Mark states that Jesus went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Some of your versions will only mention Tyre there. That's because the earliest manuscripts only mention the city of Tyre. The city of Tyre was located up on the Mediterranean coast, about 20 to 25 miles northwest of the city of Capernaum and also the Sea of Galilee. And that was where Jesus had spent the, the bulk of his time ministering when he was in Galilee. What's noteworthy is that it was not customary, though, for Jesus to travel outside of Palestine and specifically outside of Israel. And so, but he does so here, and we might want to know why. Well, the answer to why, really, I think, is locked up in the second thing that we learn from verse 24. The second thing that, that we learn there is that Jesus entered a house and wanted no one to know it. Now, that's a key piece of information. We know from, from Matthew's gospel in, in, in chapter 15, and you may want to put your finger there because I'm going to be referring to Matthew and his account of this passage regularly. But we know from what Matthew says there that Jesus brought his disciples with him. And what we can infer from that is that Jesus wanted to, to get away and to spend some time with his disciples and, and to rest and to recuperate and be able to invest in them in a very personal and, 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 and quiet way. But you might recall he tried to do that an awful lot when he was in Galilee, but it seemed to always get interrupted. For example, when he went to, he, he got with his disciples, they got on a boat, they, they moved away from the shore, and all the people on the shore kept running to him, and they met him when he got to the next place, and he ended up having to feed 5,000 men plus all their families. Every time Jesus tried to get away with his disciples and spend some time alone, it seems that the crowds always interrupted that time. Not only that, but... Jesus was also having to deal with the fact that the scribes and the Pharisees were always trying to catch him in something. That was what we saw in the very last section. So they were dogging his every steps as well. So though no, neither Mark nor Matthew tell us specifically, we can really infer and surmise that Jesus traveled outside of Israel to the region of Tyre and he entered a, a Gentile house with his disciples because he was confident that the Jewish crowds would not follow him. And he was virtually certain that the scribes and Pharisees would not come. You see, Gentiles had no problem entering into Israel. They had no problem traveling into places where, where, that were inhabited by Jews. But the Jews, on the other hand, it was scarce for them to actually travel outside into Gentile countries. And they really would never go into a Gentile home. And the reason that that was the case was because they were so concerned about becoming defiled. Jesus, however, appears to have no problem whatsoever entering into a Gentile region and certainly no problem entering into a Gentile home. And we might ask why. Well, I believe the answer is tied to what we learned last week. If you'll recall, last week we learned that Jesus said that defilement, that what truly defiles us, is not what comes from the outside and goes into us, but actually, spiritual corruption and defilement is what emits out of us. It comes from the deep recesses of ourselves. And we learned according to verse 19 last week that based upon that, we know that it's not foods that we eat. It's not something that comes into our mouths and into our belly that causes us to be defiled. Rather, it's, it's what comes out of us. Well, in that section, we learned about what foods Jesus declared to be clean. Here, what we learn in this section is if it's not food that defiles us, it certainly cannot be the people we come in contact that defiles us either. That's why we recognize that when Jesus goes into a Gentile country, he can even go into a Gentile home. Why? 
Because defilement doesn't come from outside. It comes from inside. And so recognizing that, we recognize that Jesus of his own volition entered into a Gentile region with no doubt that he would interact with Gentiles. One more thing I want to point out to you from verse 24. Mark tells us that Jesus wanted to remain incognito. He wanted to remain hidden. Mark clearly tells us that he could not be hidden. And I love what R.C. Sproul has written with regard to that phrase. He says, although Mark was speaking in a literal sense, that observation remains true in an ultimate sense. You see, no matter how people try to hide Jesus, he cannot be hidden even in the darkest places of this world. It's good for us to remember. It's good for us to remember even in the dark times that we may face. He couldn't be hidden here in the region of Tyre either. Notice that Jesus' quiet time of seclusion with his disciples was once again interrupted. This time not by multitudes and this time not by the persnickety and the, the nitpicking scribes and Pharisees. Rather, this time he's interrupted according to verse 25 by a woman with a young daughter possessed by an unclean spirit whom she comes and throws herself down before Jesus. We're not told how she knew who Jesus was. Matthew tells us that she knew that he was the son of David, so she knew of his, mess, his, his issue of being a Messiah. We don't know how she knew that he had the ability to heal. Perhaps it was that others who had traveled from Tyre and Sidon, as Mark 3.8 tells us, into the area of Galilee and had received healing as a result of all that Jesus did, had come back and told her about this man. We don't know how that they even found out that she found out he was in the area. But what we do know is that when she did find out, she went to him and she came begging him for help. But before we get to what she asked for, I want you to notice how Mark identifies her. First, he tells us in verse 25 that she was a woman. Next, in verse 26, we learn that she was a Greek. It doesn't mean that she was from Greece. It means that she was from an area that had been defeated ultimately by Alexander the Great, had been Hellenized and, and spoke the Greek language. Mark tells us specifically that she came from Syrophoenicia. She was a Syrophoenician woman. In other words, she was a Syrian of Phoenicia. And Matthew, in his commentary on this text, tells us that she was a woman of Canaan. And that's significant because if you go back to the Old Testament, you will learn that the Canaanite people were the enemies of Israel. And so recognizing everything that we've just learned about this woman thus far as it pertained to, to first century Judaism, she had about as much going against her as a person could possibly have. As John MacArthur has noted, she, she was a woman. Where Among the Jews, they, they viewed women as inferior to men. She was in the Gentile region of Tyre, which was known as a major center of idolatry. And she was a Canaanite and therefore a, a, a descendant of Israel's ancient enemies. So if you want to talk about being outside the pale of God's blessings and benefits, that's exactly who this woman was. She was also a woman that had a problem, and her daughter was the problem. Her daughter had an unclean spirit, and Mark points out that she was demon-possessed. And evidently, this demon possession was so bad, it caused such great trauma to this little girl that it had driven this woman to the feet of Jesus. Perhaps this young girl was like the little boy that we'll read about in Mark chapter 9. In Mark 9, we'll read about a boy who was possessed by a demon and that that demon would cause him to foam at the mouth. It would call him, cause him to gnash his teeth. It caused him to become stiff as a board where nothing could be done and it caused great trauma to his body. Perhaps this young girl was experiencing the same thing. Whatever the case was, it was so terrible 
that it caused this mother to be panic-stricken. She was desperate. And in fact, that's the first thing that I want you to know from your outline this morning. It was a desperate faith that drove this woman to Jesus. It was a desperate faith that drove this woman to Jesus. Verse 25 says she came and fell at his feet. I want you to think about that image. Think about a crying mother pleading with Jesus. A man whom she only knew by reputation, but a man that she believed nevertheless and whom she hoped had the ability to heal her daughter. She's there on her knees. She's begging him. She's pleading with him. Please heal my daughter. Please, please, please heal my daughter. Such a picture really indicates that she had exhausted all of her other options. Jesus was her last hope. I want you to notice also her desperation led to her persistence. Verse 26 says that she kept asking. She kept begging him to cast the demon out of her. The verb tense in Greek there is one of, of, of it's, it's active and it's imperfect. And what that means is it's an action that is repeated over and over and over again. And so the woman continued to beg. She continued to plead. She didn't just ask once. Kent Hughes notes that she was not only persistent, but she was noisy in her persistence. Matthew tells us that she came to Jesus and cried out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. What becomes clear from these pictures that are painted both in Mark and in Matthew is that this woman would not be denied. She was desperate. And in her desperation, she was persistent. But I want you to note that her desperate persistency is met with a surprising response. Matthew, again, referring to his account, we find that this woman threw herself down before Jesus, begging him repeatedly for help and mercy. And then Matthew tells us in chapter 15, verse 23, that he answered her not a word. Jesus was silent. Almost as if he was indifferent to her pleas and to her cries. Martin Luther said this with regard to this passage. He said, Jesus is now silent as a stone. And I believe such a response was not only surprising, but I believe it was disappointing as well. Gerald Biltz has written this. He says, how discouraging to receive no answer at all to her cries. Perhaps it seemed to her that hell was open to her while heaven was closed. A demon-possessed daughter on the one hand and a silent Savior on the other. But notice that though Jesus was silent, the woman was not. She continues pleading. She continues begging. In fact, according to Matthew, Jesus' own disciples went to Jesus and said, Would you please send her away? Why? Because she cries out after us. Same understanding. She continues to pester us. Let me quote Hughes once more. He says, Peter probably scowled, quick-tempered John probably got impatient. Andrew and Philip and the rest thought her rude and presumptuous. What rejection the woman experienced. She thought about her daughter and remembered what she knew about the Lord and persisted. That leads me to the second point that I want you to note that we need to observe from this text. The first is that desperate faith drove the woman to Jesus. The second point is this. A persistent faith kept the woman at the feet of Jesus. A persistent faith kept the woman at the feet of Jesus. So what we've witnessed thus far is that 
is that a desperate faith and a persistent faith was what this woman possessed. But this woman was, was about as far removed from the blessings and benefits of God as she could possibly be. And right here in this part of the story, though, is where we're expecting the breakthrough to come in the text. This is, this is where we expect everything to just open up and be, and, and all the roses and all the sunshine just start beaming in. Instead, though, we're met with another surprise, and this one's a shocker. Finally, after having ignored the woman with indifference and silence, Jesus does finally speak to her. But I want you to notice again what he says. Verse 27 says, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, once again, that is not exactly what we might have expected to come from the lips of our Lord. Frankly, his response sounds insensitive. It sounds rude to our ears. But since we do know this, we do know that Jesus Christ was the perfect, sinless, holy Son of God. And since we know that were He not the perfect, sinless, holy Son of God, you and I would have no hope because He would not only be able to not atone for His own sins, He wouldn't be able to atone for ours. And so the fact that we know this about Jesus helps us to be able to understand that everything He ever did and every word He ever said were perfectly righteous and perfectly holy. And I believe such is the case here. The question is how? How do we get to that? How do we understand it? Well, let's dig just a little deeper. Because first of all, I want you to know that according to Matthew's Gospel, Jesus makes that same statement that Mark recorded, but prior to that, he tells the woman in chapter 15, verse 24, he says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, Jesus is clearly telling the woman that his mission of priority was to the Jews. His ministry point was primarily to the people of Israel. Consequently, that's why he says, let the children be filled first. It didn't mean that they would not be more filling to take place, but he's talking about the order in which it were to, is going to happen. He's saying there's timing for the good news. And at this point in the ministry of Jesus, the gospel had not, and all of its benefits, had not come to all the nations. It certainly would come. We know that the Apostle Paul would talk about that later in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. But then Paul even puts this to the Jew first, also to the Greek. So, so in saying what he did, Jesus is just establishing his ministry priority. But then what do we do about this term, little dogs? Why use that term in reference to this woman? Maybe you would believe this, maybe you wouldn't. You would not believe the amount of ink that has been spilled in the writing trying to explain what Jesus says here. Was he being insensitive? Was he being rude? Was he being unkind? Or perhaps he wasn't. It is true. Here's the things that we do know. The Jews did refer to Gentiles on, on occasions as being dogs. And when they did, they were referring to them as being the, 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 the scavenging, dangerous cur animals that, that roamed the streets eating garbage and, and were generally people were afraid of them. Yes, that did happen. Which is why some refer to the fact that Jesus used a more diminutive term, a softened term, calls them little dogs, more of what we would interpret the, the word to be actually puppies. And that by saying that, Jesus is toning down this racial slur in other words, he wasn't comparing her to a wild dog that roamed the streets. Really, he was comparing her to the lap dogs that many of us may know that exist in our own homes. 
Here's where I come down on all this argument. I'm going to let you read them all for yourself and you can decide for yourself. I'm going to tell you where I get that. In my home, I have four children and one dog. And I feed all of them. But if you come to my home, there will be absolutely no question as to who are my number one priorities. There will be no question as to who I am going to make sure I feed first. And I cannot come up with a better solution and a better understanding of this text than just simply Jesus is saying, my priority, my number one priority was for the children that God has called me to. I will let the children eat first. Now here's the thing. If we just stop right there and we get so overwhelmed with that verse and with that, that statement and we close our Bibles and we walk out, there's going to be a lot of disappointment in our lives. We're going to be upset. Our confidence in Jesus may quite frankly take a hit. Our confidence in his love for us may take a hit. Our hope in the future may take a hit. If for no other reason, because as far as I know, the majority of us in this room are not Jewish children, but rather we would be under the heading of Gentile dogs. But as I said when I quoted R.T. France at the beginning, the challenges and the misunderstandings of this passage spring largely from a failure to read it as a whole. So let's continue reading. Because I want you to notice in verse 28, notice how the woman responded to what Jesus said. She didn't respond the way that we might expect her to respond. In fact, this is really the third surprise that comes into our text. Notice that she doesn't get up and glare at Jesus and say, well, I never. I cannot believe you just called me that. I cannot believe you used that term to describe me. Who do you think you are saying that about me? You don't know me. You don't know who I am. You don't know anything about me. How could you say such a thing to me? In fact, based upon what we read, she didn't say anything like that at all. She doesn't argue with Jesus. Rather, notice what she does say. She accepts his statement and even agrees with him. She says, yes, Lord. And then she says, yet, even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Wow. Folks, if what Jesus said to her, if we think that was shocking... If we truly pay attention, what she said back to him is even more shocking. Because unlike what is so common in our society today, this woman didn't stand up and demand her rights. In fact, based upon her reply, she didn't get offended at what Jesus said at all. She doesn't scream back at him, asserting herself and demanding what she is owed. Instead, what we see here is truly a marvelous display of humility. That leads me to the third point that I want you to see this morning. See, it is a humble faith that received the blessing of Jesus. She came to him desperate. That's what drove her to Jesus to begin with. Persistency kept her at his feet, and humility allowed her to receive the blessing that he offered. 
I love what Tim Keller, how he paraphrases the woman's words. He says it this way. He says, she says, yes, Lord, I recognize I am but a little dog, but even the puppies eat from that table too, and I'm here for mine. Put another way, she says this, I understand I'm not from Israel. I don't have a place at the table. I accept that. But there is more than enough on the table for everyone in the world, and I need mine now. Do you hear the combination of humility and persistence and desperation in that response? Matthew reminds us that when she came to Jesus, she begged him for mercy. Friends, to beg for mercy is not to demand what you are owed. In fact, to beg for mercy recognizes that inherent goodness lies not in oneself, but rather in the one from whom mercy is sought. Furthermore, in her reply to Jesus, she not only, she only, she's just looking for the crumbs from the master's table. She's not demanding his blessing based upon her goodness. She acknowledges that she has no claim to his blessing. Nevertheless, she asserts that the overflow of the blessing of his bread crumbs from the master's table. That would be enough for her. To quote Keller once more, he says, the woman was light years away from supposing that she merited anything, from, any, merited any help from God. She knew there was no merit in her that would win Christ's help. She was a Gentile, not a child of the household. And the bottom line was that she depended on Christ's goodness and not her own. It was all of grace. I tend to see it this way. The reply of this woman to Jesus is comparable to what David said in Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. It's like what David wrote in Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. And to what the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. But on this one I will, live, I will look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. And to what Christ says in his Sermon on the Mount. Remember what he said in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But they shall be. So in this passage, what we have been introduced to is a woman who was unclean, an undone woman, an unworthy woman. But as one writer has put it, Matthew, Matthew, who otherwise is known as Levi the tax collector, Levi the tax collector, or Matthew that we know him as in the New Testament, he knew a little bit of what it was like to be rejected. He knew a little bit of what it was like to be looked at as, as somebody who was the lowest person on earth. One writer I read this week said, even Levi, even Matthew probably looked at this woman ensconce and go, wow, what are we doing? What kind of ministry are we getting involved in dealing with people like this? And yet such a woman as that dared throw herself at the feet of Jesus in desperation. And she persisted there even when Jesus was silent. And even... When she was rebuffed by him, she did not argue with him or become offended at him. Rather, she accepted his assessment of her, and in humility, she begged him for mercy and grace. And I want you to notice how he responded to her in verse 29. 
He said, for this sake, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. Another way to interpret that would be to say this. What an answer. What a reply. What, a, what an incredible response. I'll do as you have asked. Now let me ask you this question. Did Jesus answer her prayer because she was in some way charming or witty or because she was able to catch him in his own words? Is that why Jesus did for her what he did? No. In fact, none of those things could ever commend us to God. Rather, as Matthew makes clear, Jesus looked at her and said in chapter 15, verse 28, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. You see, friends, it is faith. It is always faith that God honors. It is desperate faith that recognizes that Christ is your only hope. It is a persistent faith like that of this woman, like that of Jacob, who said, who wrestled with God, the Bible says, and said, I will not let you go until you bless me. It is, it is a humble faith that, that comes to realize that what the Bible says about you is actually true, even though it may be the most difficult thing for you to, to swallow that you possibly can. The Bible says that you are a sinner. The Bible says that you are unworthy and undeserving of God's grace and mercy and that apart from Christ, you stand as far away from him as this Syrophoenician, Greek-speaking Canaanite woman did. And it's that kind of faith, though, that recognizes that God honors. Jesus said to her, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she went home, the Bible says she found the girl sleeping on the bed, calm, no longer no longer possessed by the demon. She had come to Jesus begging for him to heal her daughter, and he did it. But I want you to know the miracle is not the primary point of the passage. Rather, as we have seen, the focus has centered on the woman's faith. She desperately, persistently, and humbly believed, and her faith was properly placed in Christ. And it was him who was able to provide not only for her daughter, but for her. I love this quote from Bilks once more. He says, though she was content with a crumb, the Savior put the whole of heaven's wealth at her disposal. The Lord could do this because on the cross, his body would be broken and his blood would be shed for a full atonement. He would cast out this devil because he would defeat him at the cross. He could give this woman a rich feast because he hungered and thirsted under the displeasure of his father for sinners such as her. In other words, he who knew no sin became sin so that outcasts like this woman might be accepted as sons and daughters. He took her hell in order to make her an heir of heaven. What a beautiful story. And what a beautiful testimony to each of us. And it leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. Though we are unworthy, we may partake of the blessings and benefits of Jesus Christ by coming to him with a desperate, persistent, and humble faith appealing to him for his mercy and grace. Have you done that? Have you come to realize just how desperate you are apart from Christ? Have you come to understand that your situation cannot be remedied unless God shows you mercy and grace? 
such recognition must drive you to humble repentance. Consider what the outcome would have been if the woman had taken offense to Jesus. How would things have turned out if she had demanded her rights and become angered at Jesus' words? Listen, friend, as one I read this week put it, you can be spiritually ruined by your rights and being so easily offended. Put another way, grace and a sense of entitlement cannot coexist in the same heart. The call of the gospel, the good news is for outcasts and undone sinners like you and me. And it tells us that if we come to Christ desperately, persistently, and humbly begging for his grace and mercy, that he will give it to us. Have you done that? Will you do that? And receive his pardon for your sins. For some of you, you're likely identifying with this mother from a different angle. Perhaps it is because you have been pleading with the Lord about a child or a family member. Perhaps you are a child and you've been pleading with the Lord about your parents. Brother or sister, please do not misconstrue the Lord's silence as indifference. Do not think that he is unkind and uncaring. Often the silence of God and the delay of his answer are at times a means of his preparation for what he intends to do. I do not claim to understand the ways of God or why he does the things that he does. I simply know this. He is gracious and he is merciful to those who come to him in persistent desperation, humbly clinging to their faith in his goodness. Therefore, I would ask that you allow this text to serve as a means of encouragement to you because, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.